Hello again, listeners. You are listening to a very special episode about the male gaze. Part one is available here for free, but to get the whole thing, you'll have to sign up for my Patreon or Spotify subscriptions. But Patreon is better. Patreon.com slash GirlsGutsGiallo. Enjoy the free sampling of this episode. You must tell me all your secrets. Remember, we must share everything together. Welcome to Girls, Guts, and Giallo, and this is Annie Rose Malamich. We have a very juicy topic today. I think it's juicy. Uh, (laughs) And I'm here with longtime listener and new friend and colleague, Sid Branca. Hello. I'm delighted to be here. Hi, Sid. And I'm delighted that you started coming to the streams uh, and that we met. Because now we get to do this episode. Uh, on... Yeah, and I think we'll have a lot of f- fun things to talk about in this one. Yeah, absolutely. And before we get into it and what the male gaze is, or what Laura Mulvey defines it as specifically, uh, Sid, can you introduce the listeners to who you are and what you do, what you're about? Yeah, so my name is Sid Branca. Um, I'm a video artist. Um, I do a lot of um, short form video work, but also live performance work that involves video in some capacity. Um, And I also, uh, I teach in the Department of Film, Video, New Media and Animation at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Um, I've been doing that since 2015. Um, So I teach um, both studio practice and art history in the realm of moving image. Um, and in terms of my own research interests and things that I like to make work about, um, it's often very much about uh, gender and sexuality and the body, but also thinking about 
um, genre fiction and kind of science fiction and horror um, and how those things for me are very related. Um, and that's I don't know what else. <laughs> all of the things we love over at Girls, Guns, and Jello. Uh, <laughs> so we're talking today about the concept in film theory of the male gaze. And I believe we decided to do this because I was super frustrated about film Twitter like people who talk about film on Twitter, I don't even whatever, whatever you want to call it. Um, people who are interested in film on Twitter, which includes a vast array of people, not just critics, uh, who use the term male gaze, I believe, incorrectly. So I was talking about that and, you know, Sid kind of chimed in and we were like oh we should do an episode on this so this is such um laura mulvey's essay visual pleasure in narrative cinema is such a foundational text for Mm -hmm. contemporary film criticism and i wanted to just make sure that i was also getting it right because i haven't read it in quite some time and just it's so foundational and we sort of don't talk about the actual contents of this essay where the the term was popularized. So I thought it would be behoove us all as critical thinkers to (laughs) dissect it and talk about it and explain it. It's pretty inaccessible. So I thought, I think, I think psychoanalytic theory is really difficult. Oh, I would agree that it's a really difficult text. Yes, it's like packed. And you look at it and you're like, this is only eight pages. And then you're reading it and you're like, oh my God. It's like every sentence has a thesis. So I wanted to unpack that for whoever might be interested. And yeah, Sid, do you have any more thoughts on why this topic was interesting to you? Yeah, I mean, I think that... um, when people use the phrase male gaze they're sometimes referring to a bunch of different things kind of not very specifically um and kind of speaking about things really categorically um in a way that i don't think is super materially useful in talking about a film and so i think um part of why i'm excited to have this conversation with you is to um really try to like look at what it is that people are wanting to say (laughs) when they use that phrase um and especially too in recent years um the term female gaze has been used a lot um as a sort of response or counter to the male gaze um but again kind of not very specifically and so i'm excited to talk to you about like what are some things that people mean by that which again not any one thing necessarily Um, yeah and I don't know about you but this was like the first essay I read in a in my first film class ever (laughs) I distinctly also remember that my first um my first like class in anything art related in undergrad we had to read this essay and I was like 17 and I got so mad and I wrote an essay about vertigo (laughs) and I was like incredibly incensed by this essay. Um, 
and I've been kind of thinking about it sporadically with varying levels of agreement and disagreement. Uh, totally over the last like 15 years or something well it really is that resonant like it was a very important essay for a reason there's a reason it's still taught and there's a reason that the language from it has been integrated so much into contemporary film theory and especially i don't even know if i would call it film theory into contemporary film criticism and Mm -hmm. it has been utilized um in the most recent iterations of identity politics. Mm -hmm. So I think it's an important thing to talk about. And the first thing I really wanted to talk about was how this is not a term that was invented by Laura Mulvey. Uh, This term, the male gaze, was first, it first appeared in John Berger's Ways of Seeing in 1972 it's great it's one of those things that you watch in college and you're like whoa (laughs) it just cracks your skull open and i think in contrast to what we were just saying about um the laura Mulvey essay john berger's waves ways of seeing is really accessible Mm -hmm. like i show it to my or parts of it to my students even now because it like it's something that someone who hasn't read a lot of theory or anything can just jump right into and be like, oh, I get what you're saying, John Berger, with your charming British accent. Yeah, totally. It's much more accessible. It was uh, intended as a response to Kenneth Clark's Civilization TV series, which was like a traditionalist Western artistic cultural canon. Uh, And the series in the book... Uh, John Berger's criticizes traditional Western cultural aesthetics. Um, in particular, it points out the concept of the male gaze. Uh, John Berger uses an analysis of the nude in European painting to illustrate this point. And it became popular among feminists, including the British film critic Laura Mulvey, who we're talking about a lot today, who uses it to critique media representations, not just media representation, narrative cinema representations mm-hmm. up to that point, and not even really up to that point, because she doesn't talk about film that would be contemporary to her. Yeah, yeah, which there, there are some there are some very notable examples that I'm sure we'll talk about. Exactly, exactly. Um, And she uses that to critique the representation of female character in narrative cinema. So visual pleasure and narrative cinema is where the term the male gaze was popularized in film theory, popularized in film theory. It comes out in 1975. um, And it appeared in the British film theory journal Screen, and then later in her collection of essays entitled Visual and Other Pleasures. Which is such a sexy title for a not sexy book. It's really not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the thing is, Laura, the, even the title, like Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema, you're like, ooh. And then you read mm-hmm. it and you're like, okay, never mind. Um, she's, oh, she's saying pleasure is bad, huh? Yeah, exactly. Oh. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and her the essay was very much influenced by modern psychoanalytic theory like Freud and Jacques Lacan. Uh, and it is the first major essay that really helped the orientation of film theory towards a psychoanalytic framework. So for this episode, we're going to focus on the Laura Mulvey essay, 
not ways of seeing. And I want to deconstruct and kind of put it in layman's terms and give examples of the male gaze, not just name films, but evidence for why they exhibit the gaze in their form and discuss the relevance of the concept today. So that's my goal. Which it'll it might take us a while, but I'm yeah, excited, you know we'll I'm see. To try. We also have like 18 pages of notes, so we'll, we'll see where what happens. Yeah, and I was thinking maybe a place to start is to try to give a summary as best I can of the some of the psychoanalysis stuff that she's referencing absolutely because i feel i feel like the essay kind of um one of the things that's not very accessible about it is that it operates under the assumption that the reader is already familiar with some concepts from freud and lacan that most people are not familiar with and that are like batshit like you have like they're truly wild yeah yeah, they're truly insane like i just want to put that out there too like if you're ever reading psychoanalytic theory and you're like what the fuck is this like i don't understand this that's fine it's they're going off a lot of like assumptions you just kind of have to follow them to the end of their conclusion for the argument to make sense Mm -hmm. um you just kind of have to go with it so yeah you gotta (laughs) accept the premise of some freudian things that are truly unhinged (laughs) absolutely yes exactly um you know like i was even explaining it to i think you were probably there in the stream when we were talking about barbara creed's monstrous feminine and uh you know how she she relies on Freud for that text. So you kind of have to just rely on the idea that men are scared of sex because it looks like the penis is being eaten by the vagina. Like, mm-hmm. you just have to go with that. Right, that, like, castration anxiety yes. is just, like, super fundamental to how everybody's psyche operates exactly kind of the freudian assumption exactly uh, that i don't know that i share as an assumption (laughs) it's an interesting for me it's more just like sure it could that could be it that could be one of the many things that human beings are hung up about i think there's a lot more going on but it could be there in the ether i'm sure um some people some men probably feel that way totally right as a unifying theory of like how people interact with each other and with media i'm skeptical but i'm sure some men experience castration anxiety (laughs) right and yeah so let's talk about that i she opens the essay with an explanation as to why she is using psychoanalytic theory Um, And she says, psychoanalytic theory is thus appropriate here as a political weapon, demonstrating the way the unconscious of patriarchal society has structured film form. So, you know, even in a statement like that, you're like, I guess I'll just take your word for it. Uh, she She doesn't really like she goes further into detail. But yeah, I wanted let's start with that. Right. Like it. It's going with the idea that kind of things about the structure of the unconscious mind influence how cinema is structured, which like 
that point, I think I would agree with yes. that, like things about how the the kind of unconscious mind of the person making a film is going to influence how they make that film. Right. Whether or not it's a political weapon, I don't know. But right, I, I think that she is wanting. To, I think wanting it to be a political statement to say that um, psychoanalysis being a, like a factor in how we in, um, mm, let me stop and rephrase that sentence mm-hmm. <laughs> using psychoanalysis to describe how we consume media or how we look at images in media I think for Mulvey is a political idea um, to be like okay yeah the, the images that we engage with form or inform how we are in the world and that that's political I think is what she's going for that makes more that makes sense to me. How do you feel about that statement? I feel like I agree with that part of it and then it's what she thinks the structure of the unconscious mind and how that works is I is the part where I disagree. Totally. <laughs> like I think the sort of Freudian part of it right. is where I'm like you're losing me. Um Yeah, so tell me about Lacan specifically as well as well as Freud yeah Yeah. so um so at this period of time in in the 70s um in psychoanalysis sort of post Freud uh the French psycho psychoanalyst and psychoanalyst uh Jacques Lacan was extremely influential into how people were on how people were thinking about these things and Lacan kind of takes some ideas from Freud and expands on them and takes them in some very different directions. Um, So they were only sort of kind of contemporaries. Like Lacan started his career right at the tail end of Freud's. Um, So, uh, and then from the 50s into the 80s, Lacan was giving these seminars like continuously for like 25 years that were extremely influential uh, and published some collected writing in the 60s called Écrits, or or just writings, um, that were really influential on kind of the realm of psychoanalysis in general. Um, And there are kind of two big ideas uh, from Lacan that Mulvey is is thinking about um, and referring to. Let me scroll to the right part of my notes because this is going to be a little bit of a doozy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So those main two ideas are the mirror stage and his description of the symbolic order. Um, I'm excited to hear this, by the way, because I understand the mirror (laughs) stage, but I don't understand the symbolic order. The way that Lacan thinks about the symbolic order is like really abstract. Like, especially later in his career, it starts becoming like, like logic symbols that are these like equations and diagrams that are incomprehensible to me. <laughs> um, but I think the basic structure is kind of this triad. So if for Freud, there's this triad of the ego, which is sort of like the self, and then the superego, which is kind of your uh, social authority construction, and then the id that is the like, your base uh, desires. Yeah, 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 yeah all the, good, the good fun stuff um, <laughs> that you have to repress. 
Um, so that's the kind of triad for Freud. Um, but for Lacan, the, the triad is uh, the imaginary, the symbolic, and the real. Um, and those are all with like capital letters, like real with a capital R. <laughs> and, um, and they are kind of related to the, the Freudian triad, but are not the same. Um, so for Lacan, the imaginary is the realm of like images in the way that things appear to be, and also things that we imagine um, on the level of the individual, and especially our relationship with like the image of ourselves. Okay. So that's like the imaginary. It's very kind of like about the self, figuring out the self, imagining images, the imaginary. And then the symbolic is the realm of like social structures, law, culture, sort of social contracts, taboos, what like one is supposed to do, that kind of thing. Um, and that's like informing all of our interactions between people. So like the self and the other is in the realm of the symbolic. Um, kind of the symbolic is this like presence mediating interactions between people. Um, and then the real with a capital R is like raw experience. Like it is like sex and death and birth and pain and like the ocean and like <laughs> the ocean. corpse. It's <laughs> <laughs> like things that are like a lot. <laughs> that, that's like, like um, the real is often described as like the traumatic okay. uh, or where like imagination and language fail us. And so we have to have like uh, symbolic structures to kind of protect us from having to engage directly with the real um, because it is like too much. And I, if people are interested in like what uh, applying this Lacanian model of the symbolic order onto film theory or like film criticism looks like. Um, Slavoj Žižek, the Slovenian philosopher and <laughs> funny guy. Um, <laughs> He's just a funny guy. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like I have a lot of political problems with the way he speaks about a lot of things, but I find his film criticism really fascinating um, in part because he does apply this kind of Lacanian model to talking about films. Um, and he has a number of books of film criticism, but also has a sort of essay film called the pervert's guide to cinema. Oh yes. Um, Which another thing you think is going to be a lot sexier than it actually is. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, but he does kind of talk about like, the real with a capital R in the films of David Lynch and, and things like that. I feel um, like this sort of Lacanian strain in film theory is where we get like this kind of annoying maxim of like, <laughs> we watch horror to process our trauma and it's a mediation <laughs> between, you know, like that thing that's tired now. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, film operates as a kind of um symbolic route through which we can access the real to like 
process it because we can't process the real directly. Um, yeah, which like I, th I think I. I think I agree with. I do, but like, <laughs> I guess I just don't find it very interesting. Right. I guess like, and then what? Yeah. Right. Um, I would like more to come after that. What exactly? How are? How is that happening? How are we mm -hmm. mediating that? I'm not even <laughs> saying that that I disagree with that. That horror is a way for people to access that and experience catharsis. Um. I'm just kind of like, eh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like a lot of, like, male gaze thought um, does, like, forget about fun. Yes, exactly. And that, like, fun is important. What about actual pleasure? <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Yeah, but, like, yeah that, like, there, I think there can sometimes be, like, a certain joylessness. <laughs> Um, yeah, like, or criticism. maybe I just like seeing people explode. I don't, <laughs> right. you know, like, it's it's not always mm -hmm. that. Right. Yeah. That, like, we don't... And maybe that's some other, like, fucked up psycho thing we can talk about. <laughs> that's, like, more, um, less Mulvian, maybe. Um, mm. So... And I'm, I also uh, want to say, like, outright, I'm going to be super hard on this essay because that's just what I feel like doing in this episode. But I think it's really great and important. And I did just want to say that because I, I know I'm being a troll. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I feel similarly that, like, there are some really good points in this essay. And then there are some points with which I disagree. Or, like, uh, maybe a, an approach with which I disagree or it's just, like, not the way that I'm trying to live my life. Right. Um, but yeah, it's like worth engaging with. Well, what about the mirror stage? Cause that's something also Malvi also talks about. Yeah. So, um, in Lacan, um, the mirror stage is really important to the formation of the imaginary. So if the imaginary is partially about like our relationship as an individual to the image of ourself um, or ourselves, the, um, the mirror stage refers to the part in like very early childhood where the tiny child um, sees themselves in the mirror and that this is early enough in life that they don't like know how to walk yet don't really have like full control over their limbs and so have like a really fragmented sense of their own body um and then seeing themselves in the mirror according to lacan um they then perceive that image as being like complete and whole and superior to them and that there's this moment of conflict between the self and the image of the self that um that gets resolved by like identifying with the image of yourself in the mirror um and that that and that that's not just like a phase that happens when we're tiny babies and then it's done but that for Lacan it's um this kind of double relationship with our own image where we feel both like alienated from it and identify with it um sort of like narcissistically fixated on ourselves but also feel like we are not ourselves um we are not our images that that double relationship um 
is something that like continues with us throughout our whole lives. And so what Mulvey is saying is that um, looking at and identifying with images in cinema functions sort of psychoanalytically or psychologically similarly to what Lacan is saying about us seeing ourselves in the mirror. Hopefully that makes sense. That made complete sense to me. Um, and I very much appreciate that summary. I like Lacan a lot more than Freud. It, it is like less... Lacan, I feel like, is less fixated on like... Buttholes? Yeah, like biological essentialism. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, like there's definitely stuff about the phallus like a lot but it's much more abstracted so it like it feels very far away from talking about like actual penises in Lacan it's like more it's about more this... about the symbolism of the penis exactly yeah than it is about the actual penis whereas for Freud it very much is about actual penises yeah <laughs> yeah um, I feel like we also have to talk about Freud a little bit even though mm -hmm. I've talked about this in other episodes recently um I feel like you're better with psychoanalytic theory than I am. Um, and <laughs> I will try my best to sort of summarize the Freudian points that Mulvey draws on in this essay. Um, so according to Freud, every child either watches its parents in the act of sex or has fantasies about the act of their parents having sex. And these fantasies are not straightforwardly sexual um they're related to the concept of the abject in that the primal scene which is the idea of one's parents having sex represents to the child its own origin story which look you know we can see how the lacanian thought comes in there because it creates that alienation between your image of yourself and the concept of yourself and how you came into existence mm -hmm. um and then furthermore that men have an essential fear of castration and that women have you know let's i also want to a lot of queer people listen to this podcast. <laughs> this is incredibly <laughs> bioessentialist. Um, this mm -hmm. is all about like the idea of a cis man and a cis woman who are heterosexual, and there really is not a lot of room for anything else. Yeah, yeah, and and I think that um, when we get into talking about some of the more contemporary theory responses um we can maybe get into like some attempts at alternative framings for that totally um, but yeah this this whole this whole thing is all very very like women are like this and men are like this and i'm yeah. over here like what's going on totally <laughs> i don't yeah. know what that's like yeah i mean it's all kind of just like straight cosplay shit that you kind of just have to like follow to the end to sort of understand what they're you're like okay I, i'll take your word for it and it's it's like very very much 
um, Freudian theory very much hinges on this concept of castration anxiety that supposedly all men feel and uh, the penis envy that women feel. So, but the fear of castration is really just a fear of sexual difference. Um, mm. And that the fear of castration also comes from the idea of the primal scene because the child sees the penis going into the vagina and reads that as castration. And and I think too Freud talks about like the the boy child like seeing the mother naked and and being like, but where's the penis? It was Someone cut must off. Have it must have been cut it. off. Yeah. <laughs> Which, and that, um, that kind of generates anxiety. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's that's the that is all of Freudian theory. We just summarized it. Right. There's like a lot of other things going on, but I feel like that is the those are the kind of core ideas that are are being brought to bear in this context. Yes. I feel differently about this essay at different times because it is a little hard to tell maybe how Laura Mulvey feels about these films that she's talking about. Um, Like makes observations about them um, and does certainly seems to think that Hitchcock is better than von Sternberg. (laughs) Right. um, But like when um, I do think it's like, you kind of have to try to read between the lines to see like if she is actually condemning some of these things or not. But then she makes some remarks at the end of the essay that I think we should circle back to. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> so, me think maybe she is condemning it. <laughs> yeah. I hear what you mean. Yeah. I mean, the end has more like strong statements mm-hmm. about these things that she's just talked about. In the introduction, um, Laura Mulvey starts with this idea of a political use of psychoanalysis, which we talked about a little bit. And she says the paradox of phallocentrism and all its manifestations is that it depends on the image of the castrated woman to give order and meaning to its world. An idea of woman stands as a linchpin to the system. It is her lack that produces the phallus as a symbolic presence. It is her desire to make good the lack that the phallus signifies. So that's kind of her like summary of Freudian theory. And she's very much like accepting that that's true. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that that um, that the sort of penis obsessed framing of the world is partially made possible by the fact that not everybody has one. Right. Right, and they're obsessed with having one. Um, right. <laughs> Moby, she then goes on to talk about pleasure as a radical weapon, which is also weird because. Like we said, she kind of thinks pleasure is a bad thing. So I was wondering mm-hmm. if you had a thought about that. Yeah, well, because it seems like um, where is this, the where she says that thing about um, like how analyzing pleasure destroys it and that's yes. her goal. Yes, she says it is said that analyzing pleasure or beauty destroys it. That is the intention of this article to which my note here is damn. <laughs> right, like that's that's a hell of a line. Right. Um but I wonder um and when she kind of proffers like a pleasure 
in contrast to that um it's like a very abstract idea about like um this sort of like intellectual edification of like things moving forward or something as opposed to like really like still being able to take pleasure in images in um a kind of like visceral way and it does seem like yeah it does seem like that she doesn't want pleasure in yeah. this context yeah i mean at first when she's like pleasure is a radical radical weapon i'm like yeah and then she's like and i'm going to destroy it i'm like okay That's- <laughs> yeah, like she literally says that i that uh, that is the intention of this article um she also says uh 16 millimeter now with the invention of 16 millimeter film obviously because this was published in 1975 that cinema can now be artisanal as well as capitalist <laughs> It's also a weirdly dated thing to say in, in 1975. 1975. <laughs> yeah. um, because, like, I, I mean, that is a good point about, like, in the history of film, like, once 16 millimeter was around, it, like, did shift who could make films because it's uh, 16 millimeter film stock and cameras are more affordable than, like, 35 millimeter. Um, but, you know, people were making 16 millimeter films, like, what like 30 years before she wrote this um and at this point i think we're around the time that the porta pack is getting invented yes we are yeah so that that might have been a more relevant uh right reference point (laughs) yeah yeah it looks like that was 1967 Mm -hmm. um so like consumer video I mean, that I was guess portable was if, already a thing. <laughs> right. But if we are considering that she talks about film that that is at least 30 years old at this point, perhaps she is considering 16 millimeter being available in the last 30 years. That is a contemporary hmm. thing. So maybe she's positioning it more in the history of film. Right. Period. She definitely doesn't, she doesn't seem at all interested in talking about um, like contemporary video art um, right. in this, or even contemporary experimental film, right. um, because I think lots of people were making work in both film and video at this time that is like relevant to this discussion. But she really specifically is talking about like Hollywood feature-length narrative, narrative fiction films. Um, yeah, and which she, also really eliminates like most films made by women. <laughs> convenient, but I mean, <laughs> she she also uh, she positions radical film as she calls it. So she is aware of other film and normally made experimental films. So she's aware of it, which makes me feel like okay, so that's what this essay is about. Which is very interesting because people mm-hmm. use this essay to talk about not that um Mm -hmm. and the essay is really only about that (laughs) it's about mainstream hollywood film and she says that specifically um and she also says that she's not dismissing mainstream film just that it reflects psychical obsessions of the society that produced it and my note here is yes but i also find that kind of fundamentally flawed because isn't that all art right i don't know what the alternative to that is (laughs) yeah 
wouldn't like, that be everything? I, I, yeah. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I think like all images re- reflect and inform the culture in which they are produced. Yeah. Literally that all seems of them. true. Yeah. <laughs> so part two, now she's talking about pleasure in looking, fascination with the human form. And she goes on to talk about the pleasure of looking and what that is. And she uses this framework of scopophilia which how do you Sid? how do you understand that word yeah so i think it it can mean like voyeurism um she kind of talks about it as having these like two modes and that sort of voyeurism and fetishizing are i think both like scopophilic ways of um kind of objectifying a a person who is being looked at and i think we can and and we can go more into what the, the differences between those is in right. a minute but yeah I think it's like so, ways of looking at a person as an object yes yeah pretty much yeah the way that um malvi de- defines scopophilia is that it's objectification it's pleasure derived from looking at something in a detached way like an object um freud developed the concept in his work uh with children in noticing how that they they inspect objects or people's bodies in a very like detached way as if everything is an object um so the through line here is that at the extreme, supposedly, scopophilia turns into voyeurism, which is the second way of looking, the other way of looking, which is why we get people like peeping toms, which in my notes it says peeing toms. Who, <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> who enjoy watching an objectified other and feeling a sense of control over them. So Mulvey proposes that when a viewer watches a film, it unfolds before them as a fantasy, not unlike the way a voyeur watches its prey. Ooh. Yeah, which she she doesn't say prey. That's my that's my addition here. Um, and then she kind of goes on to talk about why she believes that. Um, and so then that's when she discusses the mirror phase. Yeah, I mean, I and I think um, a lot of my sort of reticence in response to, or in agreeing with a lot of this essay, aside from the kind of Freudian business that is just incredibly dated and silly, um, is that I think scopophilia is inevitably part of how cinema operates um and it seems like she's wanting to isolate it as the way that most cinema operates and less of it should do that (laughs) um where i'm just kind of like that is how cinema operates cool let's talk about it and this essay is about why it should not or why that's bad or whatever right it seems like that she's kind of taking the stance that like voyeurism and objectification are somehow extricable from film as a medium and also that they should be extracted because they're bad and Um, that's that's actually why i specifically use the term prey because i was like well this is very like 
charged to compare Mm -hmm. the viewer to a peeping Tom and a voyeur. And obviously to me in 2022 as a pervert, I'm like, yeah, but (laughs) I I know that this is supposed to be um, a very male gendered Mm -hmm. and patriarchal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it really, this essay, I think, in that construction is speaking about an audience that is male um and if it includes women in that it it includes women who are acting like men Mm -hmm. in their in 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 a sort of fantasy of having the same kind of agency as men or something right Um, but yeah I, i feel like the it is all very like it's all very vanilla basically <laughs> <For> sure, yeah <laughs> uh absolutely i mean she brings some but then she mulvey does show her work in this mm-hmm. essay like she does explain why she thinks that is um she says when the viewer is in the cinema because of the literal act of like sitting in the darkness and watching something like uh, unfold in front of you in a very detached manner, you're transported into forgetting your own body and self, and that this is like experiencing the pre-mirror stage, causing the viewer to identify instead with the star on screen instead of themselves, which creates like a narcissistic loop. Mm, basically like identifying with the male protagonist of the film and kind of leaving yourself and your life behind in the darkness of the cinema yes (laughs) exactly my note here is just insert i guess meme (laughs) but again i'm just being a troll what what did you want to say oh yeah just that i think like um and another thing about this being specifically talking about narrative cinema, right, is that it operates under the assumption that there is a protagonist and that the spectator is identifying with the protagonist, um, which in the context of like narrowing this down to mainstream Hollywood narrative fiction films, um, yes, there there usually is a protagonist. And but does that mean and... you're supposed to identify with them? Right. Um, but she does, uh, then she explains why <laughs> through form she feels like we are supposed to identify with them. So films function in a scopophilic and a narcissistic manner. So the first is a function of sexual instinct, scopophilia. The other is of ego libido. And the tension between them marked by instinct versus self-preservation, which was crucial to Freud. I have a quote here because I I'm I think you're going to explain this to me. <laughs> Both pursue aims in indifference to perceptual reality, creating the imagized, eroticized concept of the world that forms the perception of the subject and makes a mockery of empirical objectivity. So I think what that is referring to um, <laughs> is that as opposed to kind of like looking at things as they actually are, um, that there's this kind of like symbolic construction of 
this is how the world works. This is my sense of self. This is um, like kind of where I fit into and I'm in relationship to these images um, that doesn't necessarily have a lot to do with anything that's actually happening. Um, I feel like this is almost what people mean when they say main character syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> is, uh, um, this kind of, I have an image of myself in my mind and how I relate to the world. Um, I'm looking at this beautiful objectified person and I think I have some kind of relationship to it. Um, to the to this image um and by the things that i identify with like reinforce my sense of self in a way that may have nothing to do with anything i am actually doing in in the world i'm just listening to some man yell on a podcast or whatever <laughs> so how do so how does this come back though to narrative film so i think the idea is that um the like identification with the protagonist um is kind of functioning as a part of that and the and also the like identification even maybe sometimes with the camera in the sort of place of the protagonist i think it's like part of this like self like this like ego construction Okay. I think that's the claim being made. Yeah. And then she says that the woman crystallizes this essential tension of cinema between instinct and ego. I think that's what she's saying. Yeah. That like that the image of a woman, right, is is necessary for that process to happen. Um, although I don't know that I agree with that, but I think that's what she's saying. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> because is that because we're in a patriarchy right that that the 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 construction of the like division of narrative labor under patriarchy for Mulvey is that like the active hero is a man and that the <clears throat> passive sort of sub the, the other person right who has to be uh rescued or punished or whatever um or looked at that that um, that that is the role that goes to the woman. So interesting when thinking about Vertigo because I really think that Jimmy Stewart is the one who's punished the most in that movie. But, mm. but when we, we'll get back to it. Um, so, in a uh, this is her first use of the the term male gaze. In a world ordered by sexual imbalance, pleasure in looking has been split between active slash male and passive slash female. The determining male gaze projects its fantasy onto the female figure, which is styled accordingly. So this is like the very famous passage of this essay. And then I actually have a longer quote here that I want to read because this is this whole thing is the most famous part. Uh, Usually in an exhibitionist role, women are simultaneously looked at and displayed with their appearance coded for strong visual and erotic impact so that they can be said to connote to be looked at-ness. They're there to be looked at, basically. Women displayed as sexual object is the leitmotif of erotic spectacle. From pinups to striptease, from Zigfield to Busby Berkeley, she holds the look, plays to, and signifies male desire. 
mainstream film neatly combines spectacle and narrative. Note, however, how in the musical song and dance numbers uh, break the flow of the diegesis. The presence of woman is an indispensable element of spectacle in normal narrative film. Yet her visual presence tends to work against the development of a storyline to freeze the flow of action in the moments of erotic contemplation. This alien presence then has to be integrated into cohesion with the narrative. Okay, a lot to unpack there. (laughs) Any initial thoughts? Yeah, I I think it's like thinking about like the 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 visual presence of the woman being both like necessary for the storyline and being something that interrupts it um i think it's an interesting observation that like it's like oh the hero is on his journey or whatever but then a beautiful woman gets thrown in his path and he has to recalibrate right that that's so often is part of the narrative mechanism but it's like oh if if this objectified woman as an obstacle was not there then there actually wouldn't be a plot um that she like drives by intercepting or something but right um, which is so silly because the whole thing is fiction but i guess what she's saying is that that has to be the fictional element and what the plot hinges around yeah i mean i think that like the it's so funny to be like women in film connote to be looked atness when I feel like film connotes to be looked atness. That's the whole thing. That's like that's what it is. That's yeah. what like a film is there to be looked at, um, and and the men in the film are there to be looked at also. Okay, yes, um, and not erotically. Yeah, yeah. I think the like objectification and identifying with the looking at of men um is something that is present in the some of the films that she talks about um Mm -hmm. in a way that doesn't get acknowledged here um so yeah i think that the to be looked atness is not limited to women displayed (laughs) right Yeah, and then she kind of does go on to say that um, movies about women, she positions them against the buddy movie, which she says is, like, homoerotic, but then doesn't go into it. (laughs) Yeah, I really wish that – I really wish that she talked more about films that don't have women in them because those exist. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a lot of – general blanket statements here and then you sort of have to remember that she's only talking about a very specific thing Mm -hmm. um she also says traditionally the woman displayed has functioned on two levels as an erotic object for the characters within the screen story as and as an erotic object for the spectator in the auditorium with a shifting tension between the looks on either side of the screen and i was gonna say do we even agree with this point but like i think we do but i i think we also think that that happens to everybody on the screen yeah and i do think that like it's worth remarking on the fact that very rarely in film because i'm trying to think of an example in which this happens do we see someone a character inside of the film like looking sort of erotically 
at um, like another character inside the film that we as the spectators are not expected to be also looking at erotically like that I do feel like typically that sort of the like sexualized gaze of the characters within the film are often expected to be the same as at least some people in the audience. <laughs> well, and then that kind of leads me into like the the historian part of me where I'm like, maybe that is because, you know, it's okay to objectify women, but it's not okay to show actually being horny for women. Like mm. a it's okay to show capitalist objectification. It's not okay to show genuine pleasure and desire. And that I think is where I come up against friction with this idea of visual pleasure because I'm like mainstream Hollywood film is very much not about like actual pleasure because you can't actually show people experiencing pleasure. Like <laughs> you can't show someone looking at a person and like lusting and like getting a boner or whatever like that's too sexual but what you can do is put the spectator in the position of that person and show someone like performing a striptease and and i think that part of it is, is about how like the camera then stands in for the eye of a character or the eye of the audience um in part because i think the camera is permitted to behave in a particular way that might be less readily digested if a if a character did it if right. that makes sense yeah totally um i do like her analysis here of the use of the showgirl as to mm -hmm. illustrate the idea of to you know to be looked at and how it unifies that without breaking the narrative what she says a woman performs on screen within the narrative so it's diegetic and then the gaze of the spectator and that of the male characters are combined which we kind of just said there but that's when i started to be like so the male gaze is just lust and desire I think so. <laughs> Which is supposed to be only a quality that people with penises have, men with mm. penises. Yeah, and that like that this sort of lustful gaze is a thing that happens in like a power imbalance way in only one direction. Um Yeah, right, like completely leaving out the history of sex work in film. Right. Um, yeah, when we get into talk about Marlena Dietrich in a little bit, I will have some have some thoughts about that. Um, yeah, I one of the things I was thinking about when when you said that about like that's just how desire and lust work um, is I wanted to bring up this Anne Carson book length essay called Eros the Bittersweet. Um, she talks about a lot of things in it, but her main focus at least for parts of it um, are the like erotic lesbian poems of Sappho and she really talks about them a lot as being about looking and about like the sort of triangulation of looking and desire and that like um, one of the most like erotic poems in there is about like her looking at 
this woman that is looking at someone else and that this like the 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 obstacle between the gazes actually meeting is that's the thing that's erotic right like that that's the thing that's charged it's like the this the vast divide between the self and the beloved that can never truly be crossed okay hot. Like, that's very yeah, lesbian right? <laughs> this this book is so hot it's like a work of like talking about like my list yeah (laughs) Yeah. um but i i feel like that is an interesting kind of counter and primarily she's talking about like ancient texts and not like 20th century film but like i do feel like it's the that that triangulation of looking and that like obstacles to desire and like um sort of almost like voyeurism in that way that that's like all part of like the fundamental functions of desire um that speaks more to me than describing this kind of looking system as always being patriarchal and always being um kind of harmfully unidirectional and specific to certain people Yes, I'm picking up everything you're putting down. I absolutely love that um, that the use of that book for this point because yes, it, the part of part of the desire is the longing, and that is not the realm of men. <laughs> so I, uh, you know, like there, this essay really ignores any kind of idea of like a queer gaze. Mm-hmm. I was also thinking about the 2002 movie Chicago because she's talking about the showgirl and musical numbers. And I just watched it recently. And the cell block tango where all those women are talking about murdering their husbands is a showgirl number that could really illustrate this concept because, I mean, it's also it's very complicated because the levels of diegesis and the non-diegetic in that musical are wild um Mm. (laughs) like it's so removed right like the you know roxy is like in prison so we're like we're watching her in prison but then she's having an experience all of a sudden this turns into a stage musical right so it's like (laughs) levels of gaze and so we're in roxy's gaze watching this and it's very erotic so anyway thoughts yeah yeah i mean and i think that like the and like i feel like what mulvey is overlooking right is that like the kind of idea of the showgirl right of constructing a situation in which the kind of gaze of the protagonist and the gaze of the audience can be unified in their ogling or whatever uh, I feel like that neglects the point that a performer is a person with agency Um, not only like the actual actors appearing in the movies that she's talking about but like that the character of the performer is performing and that that is like that that's a two-way street like to to be a showgirl is to 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 do that on purpose and and i think that that's not objectifying to do a thing on like to be like i am going to do this also this is all about the experience (laughs) of the viewer and 
lust, but completely leaves out the idea of a viewer where their fantasy capitulates around being the showgirl. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I feel like... And being again, looked like, at. Right. I think that um, the pleasure potential of objectification, like the the pleasure that there potentially can be in being objectified as the person objectified, right? Or as the person being looked at. Um, I feel like that type of pleasure is invisible to Mulvey. I think she can't, I, I, it doesn't seem like it's something that she considers. It's very second wave feminist. Right, exactly. It's like, yeah, I, yeah, I, wa- I like being looked at. I, I don't think objectification is a bad thing necessarily. I think that people objectifying people because of their implicit biases and treating them badly because of that is. Um, but yeah, I don't think objectification in the realm of the erotic is a bad thing. Right. Like, oh, someone is looking at me like I'm an object and finding me hot. In the right context, I'm all about it. Exactly. It's all about the context. Um, mm-hmm. But Mulvey, she always shows her work, um, <laughs> which I am always begging people to do anyway. So she does explain why she thinks this. Um, and a lot of this hinges on, like, the fragmented body of the woman, like a shot that's just legs, a shot that's just breasts or you know, whatever, these uh, by abstracted images of the woman, which I wanted to share this with you, I thought would I thought you would find funny. Um, my friend will often send me uh, tweets from uh, porn Twitter. And there's a lot of people that fuck these like, fleshlights that are like a torso, just like a oh. torso that are just boobs and no head and no arms and no legs. Um, huh. People will know what I'm talking about. It's just a fleshlight with boobs, essentially. Um, and she's always like, oh, my God, I hate these things. And I those things turn me into like a second wave Laura Mulvey, <laughs> like women and women first bookstore lady who's like the bisected images of the woman's torso. But <laughs> but yeah, that's not like the not, of, it not having a head really does it's the not having a head thing for me. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a lot. Um but that's kind of where this when we like make fun of like old school feminist thought that's kind of like the this is kind of the origin of that of like these images of bisected women's bodies she says one part of a fragmented body destroys the renaissance space i don't know what that means the illusion of depth demanded by the narrative it gives flatness the quality of a cutout or icon rather than verisimilitude on the screen yeah so i think the reference to uh like the renaissance there is i think to thinking about like renaissance painting yes, and perspective like showing and kind of realism yeah right yeah um it's interesting that this is how mulvey interprets the kind of fragmentation that happens with the close-up in film because um benjamin uh walter benjamin um, who John Berger was referencing a lot in Ways of Seeing, um, t- 
talks much earlier about like how film is fundamentally different from theater in a lot of ways um but among them the fact that it like fragments the body into these sort of chopped up pieces it also fragments time by being shot like non-chronologically um but for him like he relates that to like kind of alienation from labor in the context of capitalism and like like assembly lines and like um that like takes that in a totally different direction that is not gendered at all um and is about like what happens when um the body is technologically separated and what is our relationship to technology i just gotta um, say before i forget lizzie borden <laughs> combines both those ideas in her work mm. i just think that's really cool like the fragmented body as a sexist convention but also as um late capitalist labor anyway keep going yeah yeah no i think that i think that's great um yeah and, and so that like the f the fragmentation of bodies is something that also happens to men in film mm -hmm. um so i think that's like worth noting that like there are also close-ups of men in film and and admittedly often they are not filmed the same way um i think like that there is like an observable difference in the types of close-ups. Um, but I do think that this kind of fragmentation also does other things. What are, what else do you think it does? Um, like, I think, like, I think in some cases, if it's like, yes, here's just a, a close-up of this woman's ass in this scene, just for that. <laughs> um, like, I think it is doing what Laura Mullen says it's doing in that case. Um, but I also think it's like a, um, sometimes a close-up is used to like deepen our understanding of a character rather than right. like fragment them in a way that is like dehumanizing. Right. Like here are the rings this character wears. Oh, we see she's wealthy or you know like it's mm -hmm. there are other narrative reasons that that happens even though there is pleasure in being looked at because uh films are often very beautiful or pleasure in looking at it because it's art yes. right. <laughs> um so she says it's basically like this whole section is about how in narrative film we are meant to identify with a male protagonist and be put in his shoes hence rendering the audience gaze male um she says here the function of film is to reproduce as accurately as possible the so-called natural conditions of human perception is it right i like don't think that that is true of many films <laughs> like i i would not i don't know if i can go so far as to say the majority of films aren't trying to do that but like a lot of them are not trying to do that um that i think that is hearkening to like a very early film idea about what film does which is like around the birth of cinema thinking about um film as an extension of photography in a sort of documentary mode um but the the, the like realism i mean there are people making non-realist films very early on in the history of cinema 
<laughs> yeah, and I just think I think that there's a lot of tension here because she says that film is a fantasy, but then she also says it's trying to replicate real life. Right, or at least like replicate how we perceive a, life. Mm-hmm, right, that like, oh, this is how it would really look if you were really in this situation. Um, but I actually don't think films are always trying to do that. Yeah, I actually think more often they're not trying to do that, especially mainstream Hollywood films. I really think those are supposed to be a fantasy. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that there are some issues with that in the films she chooses to talk about, especially Mm -hmm. with um, Vertigo, which is just an absolutely wild journey (laughs) that is not trying to replicate a real experience or whatever that means, you know, like how something would actually happen that could, that could also mean so many things. Um, she talks about camera technology, particularly deep focus and camera movement movements determined by the protagonist's point of view combined with invisible editing, which is in service, she says, of realism, all tend to blur the boundary between film and real. Um, And because of that, the male protagonist is free to command the stage, a state of spatial illusion in which he articulates the look and creates the action. And and I do think, um, especially in Vertigo, um, the the placement and movement of the camera is intended to kind of align itself with the protagonist, um, at least in that film and a lot of scenes in that film. Um, and it is kind of, it follows where he is looking and then the camera moves to kind of extend to where he would like to look. Um, there's particularly a scene, um, the scene where Jimmy Stewart first sees Kim Novak. I'm so bad about using the actor names instead of the character names because I keep forgetting them. Um, But when they're like in a restaurant uh, and he first sees her, he kind of turns to look at her and then the camera like keeps moving um, in a way that as a specific camera movement choice, I think really reinforces the idea of like his gaze and the camera are kind of aligned with each other in this way. Um, so I do think like looking at the choices of camera angle and camera movement is really important when you're thinking about the kind of male gaze as a presence in a film. Exactly. Um, It's not just a man making a film. It's mm -hmm. the male gaze has to be illustrated through these very specific principles that Laura Mulvey lines out. Like, is the camera in the position of the male protagonist? Are we supposed to be looking at the female character like the protagonist is looking at her? Yeah, she also says the figure of the female character is um, isolated, glamorous, on display, sexualized, eventually possessed by a male protagonist and loses individuality. Um, by means of identification with him through participation in his power, the spectator can indirectly possess her too. So is she also talking about women? Like everybody? Like we're all in the position of the male gaze? Right. Like when when Laura Mulvey says spectator, does she mean sp- spectators who are men and spectators who are not men? Um, I think she does 
Well, so she she did publish a a kind of a follow up to this uh, in the same magazine. It's super short from like a few years later. Um, and it's like very disappointing, um, but because it doesn't really answer the questions it says it's answering. Um, but one of the two things she says she's responding to in that brief follow-up is what about women spectators? <laughs> like what about the women in the audience? Um, and she gives this like very Freudian response that is essentially that some women in the audience will take pleasure in identifying with the male protagonist as like a fantasy of having agency like they did prior to sexual difference that it's like that it's very like regressing to being like pre-edible or whatever um it's a very dissatisfying response um so I think she's saying like yes m male spectators and emotionally immature women also <laughs> damn <laughs> Yeah, like, and again, like Laura, lesbians. Yeah, totally, exactly. <laughs> Hello, lesbians and gay men who yeah. famously have taken these icons of like Hollywood cinema and diva dumb and identified with them via gay, like so much of gay culture. Yeah, yeah, and like. And sort of partially because of their like imageness, right? Their to yes. be looked atness. Yes. Not like not despite that. Right. She also has a note about footnote about women as main protagonists, but says that to analyze it would take her too far away from her thesis. <laughs> yes, yeah. and that's I the other that thing she. That's the other thing she sort of talks about in that like follow up, and basically she says like films where a woman is the center of the plot or like films where a woman is the protagonist is about like using her choices to illustrate like the proper way to be a woman or not. Oh, that's not everything. Not every movie does. <laughs> not right. every Hollywood movie even. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, but now she goes back to psychoanalysis. Uh, the presence of the woman connotes castration. Her lack of penis implies threat of castration and hence unpleasure. And this is where it gets really Freudian. And she starts to talk about fetishism and sadism. Can you help me understand this part? <laughs> 